Chapter 6 of The Uncommercial Traveler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Safari. The Uncommercial Traveler by Charles Dickens. Chapter 6 Refreshments for Travelers. In the late high winds, I was blown to a great many places, and indeed, wind or no wind, I generally have extensive transactions on hand in the article of air. But I have not been blown to any English place lately, and I very seldom have blown to any English place in my life, where I could get anything good to eat and drink in five minutes, or where, if I sought it, I was received with a welcome. This is a curious thing to consider, but before, stimulated by my own experiences and the representations of many fellow-travellers of every uncommercial and commercial degree, I consider it further, I must utter a passing word of wonder concerning high winds. I wonder why metropolitan gales always blow so hard at Walworth. I cannot imagine what Walworth has done to bring such windy punishment upon itself as I never fail to find recorded in the newspapers when the wind has blown at all hard. Brixton seems to have something on its conscience. Peckham suffers more than a virtuous Peckham might be supposed to deserve. The howling neighborhood of Deptford figures largely in the accounts of the ingenious gentlemen who are out in every wind that blows, and to whom it is an ill eye wind that blows no good but there can hardly be any Walworth left by this time. It must surely be blown away. I have read of more chimney stacks and house copings coming down with terrific smashes at Walworth, and of more sacred edifices being nearly, not quite, blown out to sea from the same accursed locality. Then I have read of practiced thieves with the appearance and manners of gentlemen, a popular phenomenon which never existed on earth out of fiction and a police report. Again, I wonder why people are always blown into the Surrey Canal, and into no other piece of water. Why do people get up early and go out in groups to be blown into the Surrey Canal? Do they say to one another, Welcome death, so that we get into the newspapers? Even that would be an insufficient explanation, because even then they might sometimes put themselves in the way of being blown into the Regent's Canal, instead of always saddling Surrey for the field. Some nameless policeman, too, is constantly, on the slightest provocation, getting himself blown into this same Surrey Canal. Will Sir Richard Maine see to it? and restrain that weak-minded and feeble-bodied constable to resume the consideration of the curious question of refreshment. I am a Briton, and, as such, I am aware that I never will be a slave, and yet I have a latent suspicion that there must be some slavery of wrong custom in this matter. I travel by railroad. I start from home at seven or eight in the morning, after breakfasting hurriedly, what with skimming over the open landscape, what with mining in the damp bowels of the earth, what with banging, booming, and shrieking the scores of miles away. 
I am hungry when I arrive at the refreshment station where I am expected. Please to observe, expected. I have said, I am hungry. Perhaps I might say, with greater point and force, that I am to some extent exhausted, and that I need, in the expressive French sense of the word, to be restored. What is provided for my restoration? The apartment that is to restore me is a wind-trap, cunningly set to inveigle all the drafts in that countryside, and to communicate a special intensity and velocity to them as they rotate in two hurricanes. One about my wretched head. One about my wretched legs. The training of the young ladies behind the counter who are to restore me has been from their infancy directed to the assumption of a defiant dramatic show that I am not expected. It is in vain for me to represent to them by my humble and conciliatory manners that I wish to be liberal. It is in vain for me to represent to myself for the encouragement of my sinking soul that the young ladies have a pecuniary interest in my arrival. Neither my reason nor my feelings can make head against the cold glazed glare of eye with which I am assured that I am not expected and not wanted. The solitary man among the bottles would sometimes take pity on me, if he dared, but he is powerless against the rights and mights of woman. Of the page I make no account, for he is a boy, and therefore the natural enemy of creation, chilling fast in the deadly tornadoes to which my upper and lower extremities are exposed and subdued by the moral disadvantage at which I stand, I turn my disconsolate eyes on the refreshments that are to restore me. I find that I must either scald my throat by insanely ladling into it, against time and for no wager, brown, hot water stiffened with flour, or I must make myself flaky and sick with banbury cake, or I must stuff into my delicate organization a current pincushion which I know will swell into immeasurable dimensions when it is got there, or I must extort from an iron-bound quarry with a fork as if I were farming in inhospitable soil some glutinous lumps of gristle and grease called pork-pie. While thus forlornly occupied, I find that the depressing banquet on the table is, in every phrase of its profoundly unsatisfactory character, so like the banquet at the meanest and shabbiest of evening parties, that I begin to think I must have brought down to supper the old lady unknown, blue with cold, who was setting her teeth on edge with the cool orange at my elbow, that the pastry-crook, who has compounded for the company on the lowest terms per head, is a fraudulent bankrupt, redeeming his contract with the stale stock from his window, that, for some unexplained reason, the family giving the party have become my mortal foes.
and have given it on purpose to affront me. Or I fancy that I am breaking up again at the evening conversation at school, charge two and sixpence in the half-year's bill, or breaking down again at that celebrated evening party given at Mrs. Bogle's boarding-house when I was a boarder there, on which occasion Mrs. Bogle's has taken an execution by a branch of the legal profession who got in as the harp and was removed, with the keys and subscribed capital, to a place of durance half an hour prior to the commencement of the festivities. Take another case. Mr. Grazinglands, of the Midland Counties, came to London by railroad one morning last week, accompanied by the amiable and fascinating Mrs. Grazingland. Mr. G. is a gentleman of a comfortable property, and had a little business to transact at the Bank of England, which required the concurrence and signature of Mrs. G., their business disposed of, Mr. and Mrs. Grazinglands viewed the Royal Exchange and the exterior of St. Paul's Cathedral. The spirits of Mrs. Grazinglands then gradually beginning the flag, Mr. Grazinglands, who is the tenderest of husbands, remarked with sympathy, Arabella, my dear, fear you are faint. Mrs. Grazinglands replied, Alexander, I am rather faint, but don't mind me. I shall be better presently. Touched by the feminine meekness of this answer, Mr. Grazinglands looked in at a pastry-cook's window, hesitating as to the expediency of lunching at that establishment. He beheld nothing to eat but butter in various forms, slightly charged with jam, and languidly frizzling over tepid water. Two ancient turtle-shells, on which was inscribed the legend, Soups, decorated a glass partition within, enclosing a stuffy alcove from which a ghastly mockery of a marriage breakfast spread on a rickety table warned the terrified traveller, an oblong box of stale and broken pastry at reduced prices, mounted on a stool, ornamented the doorway and two high chairs that looked as if they were performing on stilts, embellished the counter. Over the whole, a young lady presided, whose gloomy haughtiness as she surveyed the street announced a deep-seated grievance against society, and an implacable determination to be avenged. From a beetle-haunted kitchen below this institution, fumes arose, suggestive of a class of soup which Mr. Grazinglands knew, from painful experience, enfeebles the mind, distends the stomach, forces itself into the complexion, and tries to ooze out at the eyes. As he decided against entering, and turned away, Mrs. Grazinglands became perceptibly weaker, repeated, I am rather faint, Alexander, but don't mind me. Urged to new efforts by these words of resignation, Mr. Grazinglands looked in at a cold and flowery baker's shop, where utilitarian buns, unrelieved by a current, consorted with hard biscuits, a stone filter of cold water, a hard pale clock, and a hard little old woman with flaxen hair, of an undeveloped farinaceous aspect, as if she had been fed upon seeds. He might have entered even here 
but for the timely remembrance coming upon him that Jerings was but round the corner. Now, Jerings, being an, an hotel for families and gentlemen, in high repute among the Midland counties, Mr. Grazinglands plucked up a great spirit when he told Mrs. Grazinglands she should have a chop there. That lady, likewise, felt that she was going to see life. Arriving on that gay and festive scene, they found the second waiter in a flabby undress, cleaning the windows of the empty coffee-room, and the first waiter, denuded of his white tie, making up his cruets behind the post-office directory. The latter, who took them in hand, was greatly put out by their patronage, and showed his mind to be troubled by a sense of the pressing necessity of instantly smuggling Mrs. Grazinglands into the obscurest corner of the building. This slighted lady, who was the pride of her division of the county, was immediately conveyed, by several dark passages, and up and down several steps, into a penitential apartment at the back of the house, where five invalidated old plate-warmers leaned up against one another under a discarded old melancholy sideboard, and where the wintry leaves of all the dining-tables in the house lay thick. Also, a sofa of incomprehensible form regarded from any sophane point of view, murmured, Bed, while an air of mingled fluffiness and heel-taps added, Second waiters, secreted in this dismal hold, objects of a mysterious distrust and suspicion. Mr. Grazinglands and his charming partner waited twenty minutes for the smoke, for it never came to a fire, twenty-five minutes for the sherry, half an hour for the tablecloth, forty minutes for the knives and forks, three-quarters of an hour for the chops, and an hour for the potatoes. Unsettling the little bill, which was not much more than the day's pay of a lieutenant in the Navy, Mr. Grazinglands took heart to remonstrate against the general quality and cost of his reception, to whom the waiter replied, substantially, that Jerings made it a merit to have accepted him on any terms. For, added the waiter, unmistakably coughing at Mrs. Grazinglands, the pride of her division of the county, when individuals is not staying in the house, their favors is not, as a rule, looked upon as making it worth Mr. Jerings' while. Nor is it, indeed, a style of business Mr. Jerings wishes. Finally, Mr. and Mrs. Grazinglands passed out of Jerings' hotel for families and gentlemen in a state of the greatest depression, scorned by the bar, and did not recover their self-respect for several days. Or take another case. Take your own case. You are going off by railway, from any terminus. You have twenty minutes for dinner before you go. You want your dinner, and like Dr. Johnson, sir, you like to dine. You present to your mind a picture of the refreshment table at that terminus. The conventional shabby evening party supper, accepted as the model for all termini and all refreshment stations, because it is the last repast known to this state of existence of which any human creature would partake. But in the direst extremity sickens your contemplation, and your words are these. I cannot dine on stale sponge cakes that turn to sand in the mouth. 
I cannot dine on shining brown patties, composed of unknown animals within, and offering to my view the device of an indigestible starfish in leaden pie crust without. I cannot dine on a sandwich that has long been pining under an exhausted receiver. I cannot dine on barley sugar. I cannot dine on toffee. You repair to the nearest hotel, and arrive, agitated in the coffee room. It is a most astonishing fact that the waiter is very cold to you. Account for it how you may, smooth it over how you will, you cannot deny that he is cold to you. He is not glad to see you. He does not want you. He would much rather you hadn't come. He opposes to your flush condition, an immovable composure. As if this were not enough, another waiter, born, as it would seem, expressly to look at you in this passage of your life, stands at a little distance, with his napkin under his arm and his hands folded, looking at you with all his might. You impress upon your waiter that you have ten minutes for dinner, and he proposes that you shall begin with a bit of fish which will be ready in twenty. That proposal declined, he suggests, as a neat originality, a wheel of mutton cutlet. You close with either cutlet, any cutlet, anything. He goes, leisurely, behind a door and calls down some unseen shaft. Eventual cool dialogue ensues, tending finally to the effect that wheel only is available on the spur of the moment. You actually call out, veal then. Your waiter, having settled that point, returns to array your tablecloth, with the table napkin folded cocked hat-wise. Slowly, for something out of a window engages his eye. A white wine-glass, a green wine-glass, a blue finger-glass, a tumbler, and a powerful field battery of fourteen casters with nothing in them, or at all events, which is enough for your purpose, with nothing in them that will come out. All this time, the other waiter looks at you with an air of mental comparison and curiosity, now as if it had occurred to him that you are rather like his brother. Half your time gone, and nothing come out but the jug of ale and the bread, you employ your waiter to see after that cutlet. Waiter, pray do. He cannot go at once, for he is carrying in seventeen pounds of American cheese for you to finish with, and a small landed estate of celery and water cresses. The other waiter changes his leg, and takes a new view of you, doubtfully, now, as if he had rejected the resemblance to his brother, and had begun to think you more like his aunt or his grandmother. Again you beseech your waiter with pathetic indignation, to see after that cutlet. He steps out to see after it, and by and by, when you are going away without it, comes back with it. Even then, he will not take the sham silver cover off, without a pause for a flourish, and a look at the musty cutlet as if he were surprised to see it, which cannot possibly be the case. He must have seen it so often before. A sort of fur has been produced upon its surface by the cook's art, and in a sham silver vessel, staggering on two feet instead of three, is a cutaneous kind of sauce of brown pimples and pickled cucumber. You order the bill, but your waiter cannot bring your bill yet, because he is bringing, instead, three flinty-hearted potatoes and two grim head of broccoli.
like the occasional ornaments on area railings, badly boiled. You know that you will never come to this pass, any more than to the cheese and celery, and you imperatively demand your bill. But it takes time to get, even when gone for, because your waiter has to communicate with a lady who lives behind a sash window in a corner, and who appears to have to refer to several ledgers before she can make it out, as if you had been staying there a year. You become distracted to get away, and the other waiter, once more changing his leg, still looks at you, but suspiciously, now, as if you had begun to remind him of the party who took the great coach last winter. Your bill at last, brought and paid, at the rate of sixpence a mouthful, your waiter reproachfully reminds you that attendance is not charged for a single meal, and you have to search in all your pockets for sixpence more. He has a worse opinion of you than ever. When you have given it to him, and lets you out into the street with the air of one saying to himself, as you cannot again doubt he is, I hope we shall never see you here again, or take any other of the numerous traveling instances in which, with more time at your disposal, you are, have been, or may be, equally ill-served. Take the old established bull's head, with its old established knife boxes, on its old established sideboards, its old established flue under its old established four-post bedsteads, in its old established airless rooms, its old established fruziness upstairs and downstairs, its old established cookery, and its old established principles of plunder. Count up your injuries. In its side dishes of ailing sweetbreads, in white poultices, of apothecary's powder, in rice for curry, of pale stewed bits of calf ineffectually relying for an adventitious interest on forced meat balls. You have had experience of the old established bull's head stringy fowls, with lower extremities like wooden legs sticking up out of the dish, of its cannibalic boiled mutton gushing horribly among its capers when carved, of its little dishes of pastry, roofs of spermaceti ointment erected over half an apple or four gooseberries. Well, for you if you have yet forgotten, the old established bullhead, Fruity Port, whose reputation was gained solely by the old established price the bull's head put upon it, and by the old established air with which the bull's head set the glasses and doilies on, and held that liquid gout to the three and six penny wax candle, as if its old established color hadn't come from the dyers. Or lastly, take to finish with two cases that we all know every day. We all know the new hotel near the station, where it is always gusty, going up the lane which is always muddy, where we are sure to arrive at night, and where we make the gas start awfully when we open the front door. We all know the flooring of the passages and staircases that is too new, and the walls that are too new, and the house that is haunted by the ghost of mortar. We all know the doors that have cracked, and the crack shutters through which we get a glimpse of the disconsolate moon. We all know the new people who have come to keep the new hotel, and who wish they had never come, and who, inevitable result,
wish we had never come. We all know how much too scant and smooth and bright the new furniture is, and how it has never settled down, and cannot fit itself into right places, and we will get it into wrong places. We all know how the gas, being lighted, shows maps of damp upon the walls. We all know how the ghost of mortar passes into our sandwich, stirs our negus, goes up to bed with us, ascends the pale bedroom chimney, and prevents the smoke from following. We all know how a leg of our chair comes off at breakfast in the morning, and how the dejected waiter attributes the accident to a general greenness pervading the establishment, and informs us, in reply to a local inquiry, that he is thankful to say he is an entire stranger in that part of the country, and is going back to his own connection on Saturday. We all know, on the other hand, the great station hotel, belonging to the company of proprietors, which has suddenly sprung up in the back outskirts of any place we like to name, and where we look out of our palatial windows at little backyards and gardens, old summer houses, fowl houses, pigeon traps, and pigsties. We all know this hotel in which we can get anything we want, after its kind, for money, but where nobody is glad to see us, or sorry to see us, or minds, our bill paid, whether we come or go, or how, or when, or why, or cares about us. We all know this hotel, where we have no individuality, but put ourselves into the general post, as it were, and are sorted and disposed of according to our division. We all know that we can get on very well indeed at such a place, but still not perfectly well, and this may be because the place is largely wholesale, and there is a lingering personal retail interest within us that asks to be satisfied. To sum up, my uncommercial traveling has not yet brought me to the conclusion that we are close to perfection in these matters. And just as I do not believe that the end of the world will ever be near at hand, so long as any of the very tiresome and arrogant people who constantly predict that catastrophe are left in it, so I shall have small faith in the hotel millennium, while any of the uncomfortable superstitions I have glanced at remain in existence. End of chapter 6 Recording by Rick Saffrey, Baltimore, Maryland